So welcome to A Correction Podcast. I'm your host, Nev Moscow, and I'm really excited to be joined today by Zayed El Nabosi, who wrote a wonderful piece for Africa is a Country called Did Dependency Theorist Really Ignore Culture? And I should just say that Zayed is an Egyptian PhD student in Africana Studies at Cornell University, and he's working on African philosophy of culture, African Marxism, and the philosophy of science and modern African intellectual history. Welcome to the show, Zayed. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me, love. I'm looking forward to it. Me too. So let's jump right in. Before we get to the, I guess, the philosophy side of things, let's get to dependency theory, which I guess dependency theory in its own way is a philosophy. So maybe in the most basic terms, tell us, you know, what the theory says and where it comes from. Uh, Thank you. Thank you. So uh, one way to think about dependency theory is to think about its origins in In the post-World War II period, uh, specifically in the aftermath of uh, independence for a lot of countries in Africa and Asia. And the other source of it would be reflection on the history of, uh, on on the economic history of Latin America. Uh, And I mean, and these are two different cases, obviously, because Latin American countries have been independent since the the first half of the 19th century. But whereas for African and uh, Asian countries, specifically African countries, uh, that phenomenon of independence uh, is really uh, belongs to the decade of the 1960s for the most part. Uh, and in part, it arose out of reflection on the question, is underdevelopment a product of non-integration into the world economic system? Or is it the product of too much integration in the wrong way in the world economic system? So it was really a reflection on the question of whether one problem is that, well, one needs to, for example, develop uh, the cash crop sector in a specific country, say that's producing tropical agricultural products uh, to sell it on the global market uh, so as to acquire hard currency, which then enables you you know, to, to import machinery, uh, to uh, import uh, medicine and so on, and to attempt to create an industrial sector and sort of climb through the ranks, if you will, of, of value-added products uh, on the global market. And for some thinkers, uh, and I won't speak about the the Latin uh, American side a lot. I'll just say that the theory uh, developed in Latin America, reflection a reflection on the Latin American economic experience and uh, social experience. Uh, I really focus more on on the way it got it got taken up in, on the African continent because that's really sort of uh, where my work is. And so you had people like Samir Amin, who uh, was an Egyptian French economist. Uh, but who spent most of his life in Dakar in Senegal, who started thinking about the sort of neo-colonial ties between Francophone West African countries and France and the way that these sort of affected the social and economic structures of these countries. So thinking about the way that inability to create an industrial sector, for example, has led to maldevelopments on the political level uh, in terms of the uh, of, in terms of the lang- uh, lack of a strong bourgeoisie that's able to sort of implement democratic politics in, in its own way as it were. Uh, so it's it's really a product of reflection on these experiences and it was primarily a critique of modernization theory. So so modernization theory, which was sort of a predominant paradigm in the 1950s and 1960s, saw developments uh, in the underdevelopment uh, underdeveloped world, broadly speaking, as 
really the product of an internal history. So you had these societies that were traditional, and then you had a kind of modern sector that developed, and you had this dual system, uh, dual system of sectors. And the point was to draw the traditional sector into the modern sector. Uh, the dependency theorists, by contrast, said, well, actually, the way that we're seeing this traditional sector is actually a product of historical interactions, specifically interactions having to do with the expansion of the expansion of uh, European tra- uh, trade, the expansion of European empires, uh, say from the 15th century onwards. And maybe I just I, I took the wrong classes or went to the wrong college, but when I was in college, I never really got exposed to de- dependency theory. Um, is that is my experience uncommon, or do we not really teach it much anymore? No, we we don't teach it much anymore. Actually, the the common view uh, is that dependency theory is a dead end uh, for a few reasons. So some people have pointed out, uh, pointed to uh, the experience of uh, the so-called Asian tigers in the 1980s, 1990s as sort of providing a counterexample to this theory of countries like South South Korea, for instance, being able to uh, industrialize, develop a strong sort of national bourgeoisie that's able to uh, c- create a, a kind of modern bourgeois society. And so this theory is seen as 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 having been uh, disproved. Of course, you know, one can, can then talk about whether these cases are actually counterexamples to the claims of dependency theorists or not, or whether there was also a prescriptive element to dependency theory that these cases show was actually born out in, 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 in historical reality. I won't go into that because that's that's sort of a very hotly disputed topic. But the other reason, which is, you know, I, I think the reason that we want to talk about today is if we look also at the rise of a lot of post-colonial theory in general in the United States in the 1980s, 1990s, uh, with the so-called cultural turn, there was this idea that dependency theorists, even though they contributed some important work in terms of uh, revising our understanding of history, actually totally neglected the question of culture. So you'll see often claims to the effect that dependency theory is, I'll use some common adjectives that are used to describe it, mechanic, static, economistic, in the sense that it only focuses on the economic sector and that it presupposes uniformity where there is no uniformity because of cultural and historical specificity. But also, of course, because if we look at what ha- what happened in the 1980s and 1990s, a lot of these projects uh, of development that dependency theorists were criticizing, but kind of criticizing on friendly terms. So let's think of sort of the the, the development projects that emerge in the aftermath of Bandung, where you have these state capitalist projects. Uh, Wait, I mean, these projects... I, had, I just sorry to interrupt for a sec, but I think maybe just saying a few words about Bandung would be would be important for the audience. Yes, yes, of course, of course. It's so, so, uh, so like we were saying, the a lot of African and Asian countries attain independence in the 1960s and 1950s. Of course, this is the context of the Cold War. Uh, the Cold War was very much underway. And the Bandung Conference took place in 1955 in Bandung in Indonesia. And this is seen as a landmark conference for an attempt to create a non-aligned block of developing countries. So uh, a non-aligned block that would include countries, African countries such as Egypt and Ghana <clears throat> with uh, Nasser and Nkrumah, and also including Asian countries like uh, India under Nehru, Indonesia, of course. 
Uh, and the, the idea was that you could create this regional block that would put pressure on, on both of the superpowers to take into consideration the economic and political interests of these newly independent countries. And that would be a kind of, it would give some bargaining weight to the demands of, of, uh, of these developing countries. And that it would also maintain some kind of neutrality vis-a-vis the World War, uh, the, sorry, the Cold War conflict between the United States on the one hand and the uh, uh, Soviet Union, on the other hand, and and a lot of countries involved in this project were also trying to sort of undergo their own uh, domestic industrialization uh, projects based on import substitution. But by the 1980s, for a variety of reasons, I mean these projects were were dead. So uh, and so one way to think also about the, the decline of dependency theory is that these national projects that the dependency theorists were criticizing, but also kind of on friendly terms with uh, sort of agreeing with the overall project of creating uh, relatively autonomous economies, uh, not autarkic, but autonomous. I think that's that's an important distinction. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> what was was basically that. So, so I think for a variety of reasons, uh, dependency theory has come to be seen as sort of belonging to the dustbin of history. Uh, although there have been recent attempts to, uh, to uh, I think, say very interesting thing, uh, things about it in, in the works of, peop- uh, of people like Max Eil, uh, for, for instance. All right, so let's, let's get to where you are. You're primarily interested in philosophy. And the question you're looking at is whether or not, in fact, dependency theory does ignore culture. And so... I think maybe the way to talk about this is you bring up this really interesting idea that you need a certain level of scientific and technological development in order to have developed philosophical systems. Is am I understanding your argument correctly? Yes, yes, but but, but so so if if I can make uh, you know just a minor attempt at at a rephrasing, I, I mean I please, think you yeah, definitely please, get yeah. get get the gist of it hundred percent. So I'm I'm looking at. Uh, the work of a very important uh, African philosopher from Benin, uh, Paulin Hontonji. And uh, Hontonji is is influenced by uh, a Marxist current of thought, broadly speaking. He, he's sort of, he's, um, he's in France at the same time that Louis Althusser is, is quite prominent, intellectually speaking. And one of the ideas associated, I mean, with one current of Marxism, because of course there are different intellectual currents, so we always have to be specific, is, is this idea that philosophy sort of emerges with, uh, as a reflection on science. So uh, on this account, broadly speaking, uh, a lot of ancient Greek philosophy would be a reflection on ancient Greek science, dealing with the problems that emerge from trying to understand uh uh, causation in a certain way, for example, in the context of ancient Greek medicine, uh, or trying to understand um, uh, axiomatic systems and say Euclidean geometry. So there is this idea in a, in a certain kind of current of Marxism that uh, philosophy is really primarily a reflection on, on, on science. I mean, of course, this idea is not unique to, uh, to uh, Marxist intellectual currents. It's also a very salient element in uh, neo-Kantian currents, specifically those that emerged in 19th century Germany. <clears throat> so what I was really interested in is how this African philosopher, uh, Paulin Hontonji, uh, tries to think about the question of African philosophy uh, and its state as he sees it, which he sees is not 
in his view, a very well-developed state. Of course, we can we can kind of elaborate on why he thinks that. Uh, by referring to uh, the non-development of something like modern science as it developed, say, in Europe from the 17th or 16th century onwards. Okay, that's very clear. So I guess maybe we'll start with, well, yeah, why doesn't he think that there is a developed African philosophy or that African philosophy is not very developed? So, so, so Paulin Hontonji is writing in the 1960s and 70s, and this is a period where academic African philosophy, uh, so, so, and by that I mean just, you know, African philosophers working in philosophy departments, whether on the African continent or elsewhere, you know, people who got PhDs through, through the academic system and so on, and who are teaching professionally and researching professionally for a living. In that sense, uh, African philosophy was relatively new, uh, simply because uh, in a lot of cases, uh, specifically in the late 19th century and uh, into the mid 20th century, of course, colonial educational policies were not the sort of policies that were going to foster uh, Africans who were interested in academic study for the most part. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, with, with some variations between, say, the British and the French context, but for the most part, this holds true. And the other thing is that Antonji thinks, so this is also the period where uh, the dominant stream of African philosophy is what Hontonji refers to as ethno-philosophy. So, so we, if, if we just think about the label ethno-philosophy, uh, it refers to a kind of philosophy done in an ethnographic vein. Uh, and what do I mean by that? So perhaps the most influential African philosophy book in the mid-20th century, uh, written by Placide Temples, uh, was, was an attempt to sort of describe what he called Bantu philosophy, as a kind of worldview held mm. by people on a kind of subconscious level, as it were, even though those people did not present it as philosophy. But it's not ascribed to an individual, and often it is not analyzed from a critical perspective. So you'll see, for example, and I'm, and I'm sure people are familiar with this, if you watch some like ethnographic documentary that says, well, this, uh, this group of people living in X place believe this, and it's kind of strange and sort of exotic, if you will. But there is no attempt at critical engagement, right? It's just mm -hmm. seen that it's kind of interesting that these people believe that, and it's uh, uh, sometimes depicted as entirely uh, foreign to a kind of uh, uh, secular modern worldview. Sometimes it's depicted as almost a proto-Christian worldview. For example, if, if the person mm -hmm. doing the reporting was was uh, a priest, of course, it, it makes sense that they would uh, attempt to, to read uh, Christian theological principles into it. And for Hontonji says, well, Hontonji says, well, look, uh, we can't really call this philosophy. These are worldviews. And we can't, we can't really confuse the two because for Hontonji also philosophy is the sort of thing where an individual thinker will take responsibility for what they say, right? Will say, well, I'm putting forward this thesis and these are my arguments in support of this claim. So it's, it's really a question of uh, a methodological dispute. The other thing is that Antonji also thinks that literacy is a necessary condition for there to be something like philosophy. And he doesn't think that uh, in a lot of African societies, uh, uh, there was a sufficient level of literacy or that literacy existed at all. And actually, in this respect, he's not quite correct because, for example, he ignores uh, a massive collection of uh, manuscripts in Arabic and Ajami, which uh, Ajami just refers to uh, manuscripts written in African languages and Arabic in the Arabic script and the Arabic alphabet. So they could be written in Hausa, but using the Arabic alphabet, for example. So he kind of is not really aware of that. And, and contemporary uh, African philosophers have pointed that out, like uh, Suleiman Bashir Dian. So these are really the reasons that he, he kind of takes issue 
with uh, the state of African philosophy as he's examining it in the 1960s, 1970s. Let's come back to then, I think, the, the, the first question you asked, the big question you asked, which is whether or not dependency theory ignores culture and, and how this connects to this idea of, of technology and philosophy. Thank you. So, so one way to think about this issue is to try to understand well, what were some of the dominant uh, uh, paradigms, research paradigms in the social sciences and Antonji's context. Uh, I mean, Antonji, I'm using the past, of course, uh, because I'm referring to, to his work in the 60s and 70s and 80s. Um, I mean, Paulin Antonji is, is, is uh, still alive, of course. Uh, <clears throat> but one of the paradigms was dependency theory. And uh, Samir Amin was in the car and uh, Antonji would, would go to the car. Uh, and it's clear that I mean, we see this in, in Paulin Hontonji's writing that he starts thinking, well, like, look, there is this uh, dependency theory paradigm that might actually help me uh, understand the state of, of African philosophy. Uh, so briefly, here is sort of the model that I try to reconstruct from his writings. So you have Samir Amin who emphasizes what he calls extraversion. So, so this sounds like a strange word, but, but it just means something that is externally oriented and is more responsive to external demands than to internal demands. So mm -hmm. to take an example, in the economic sector, when he's analyzing, for example, uh, the economy of uh, Côte d'Ivoire, the Ivory Coast, he writes, I mean, I mean, would write things, well, the agricultural sector is not well integrated with the local industrial sector in the sense that, the, for example, agricultural sector caters to an external market uh, looking for, say, uh, uh, some kind of tropical agricultural product. And the industrial sector is importing most of its raw materials from abroad. So you have a kind of disconnect between the agricultural sector and the industrial sector because they're not integrated together. They're integrated with economic uh, chains and processes outside the country, mm -hmm. uh, which dictate prices to, to, these, uh, to the actors in these sectors and so on. <clears throat> So Paulin Antonji says, well, look, let me, let me try to uh, uh, think about this in relation to philosophy. And he says, look, one problem with uh, African philosophy is that it is kind of uh, externally oriented. It's extroverted. And what does he mean by that? Well, he means simply that it's really written for a European audience in the sense that it, it, it is, as it were, captive to the expectations of Europeans regarding what an African philosophy should look like. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, there are kind of economic reasons for why this would be the case. I mean, if we uh, look at uh, uh, the public uh, higher education sectors in, in, in a lot of African countries, and this is even worse today, I, I would say, than uh, in the 70s, uh, they lack funding. Often now they depend on what are called uh, foreign partnerships, but really these are never the partnerships of equals because you'd have, say, for example, a university in Germany, which is providing almost all the money for the research program. Uh, and then you can see, of course, uh, the problems that this will create in terms of uh, dictating terms in terms of the research agenda that's being pursued, the kind of research questions that are being pursued. And Hontanji also starts thinking about this in relation to uh, science, because, of course, as, as we said earlier, he thinks that philosophy and science are intimately connected. So he starts thinking, well, how would one describe the situation of science in a lot of African countries? Uh, and he, he would describe it as follows, and I think this is still true to, to uh, a great degree. Uh, 
uh, you'd, one would find that in a lot of scientific collaborations, uh, African researchers on the ground, as it were, as, are seen as data gatherers. They're not really agenda setters. They don't get to have a large say in, in uh, framing the theoretical paradigm of the question. Um, uh, even the, the theoretical paradigm itself and the kind of questions that are seen as, as pressing are often not dictated by the internal needs of, of, uh, of specific African countries, but rather by the interests of, of uh, whoever is, is funding these research programs. So you kind of create a similar, almost a kind of similar situation of, well, uh, Africa is not just a place where uh, you can get raw materials, say, for industrial uh, for industrial sectors, you can also almost get raw, material, raw materials for scientific projects, but it's not seen as a kind of theory generating space at all. Certainly not a paradigm setting place by, by, by any means, according to this model. Uh, and of course, Hontanji thinks, well, look, if, um, if you don't have a well-developed scientific uh, uh, culture, if you will, or, or uh, discourse, then insofar as philosophy requires this, or at least according to Antonji, uh, uh, philosophy is essentially a theory of science, then you actually will have problems uh, reflecting on uh, creating a, a philosophical discourse that reflects on a kind of internal scientific discourse, simply because this scientific discourse is either non-existent or too weak or totally or almost totally externally oriented. Okay, and so I guess, yeah, well then what are the implications of that? Well, I mean, one implication that Hontonji uh, thinks is, well, actually, the problem, the health of African philosophy, if you will, uh, is, is really a problem that has much deeper roots than many African philosophers thought. It's not a problem that can be resolved by just doing philosophy better, as it were, um, because precisely because it has these sort of socioeconomic roots on a very macro scale. Mm -hmm. uh, but it also really... Uh, emphasizes something important, which is uh, how do we think about the relationship between colonialism and modern science on the African continent? I mean, this is something that uh, is really sort of uh, uh, a close topic to my heart. I've, uh, it's, it's one of uh, the areas that I focus my research on, because uh, Hontonji says, look, if you look at the historical record in West Africa, you'll see that actually colonialism far from contributing to the introduction and say institutionalization of modern science actually thwarted all such attempts and he draws on case, uh, case studies from um <clears throat> from benin but i also uh, i work on another case study myself from uh what is today the gold coast sierra leone the, uh, the <clears throat> excuse me uh, uh, parts of nigeria uh, and this case study that i look at for example is uh, the reaction of British colonial officials to uh, the proposal by an African intellectual of the 19th century called James uh, Africanus Bielhorten to found a university in West Africa to teach the sciences. Uh, in, uh, and and he, he makes this proposal in the uh, mid-19th century, and this proposal is totally rejected, of course. Um, so the implications, I think, is also trying to understand, uh, we see... Uh, sometimes, especially when we look at this issue from a kind of cultural identity perspective, there is this idea uh, sometimes held also on the African continent that colonialism, one of the things that colonial uh, systems did was they imposed uh, modern science on, on subjugated people. Well, 
and and this of course then leads to questions about well how can we integrate uh, uh, modern science and institutionalize it while preserving our cultural identity mm-hmm. but actually if we closely examine the issue we see that actually far from doing so colonialism pre sort of preempted and hindered attempts at uh, institutionalizing and indigenizing modern science and this of course has you know implications in terms of how we think about development today uh, uh, and the legacy of colonialism yeah it, it reminds me of a part of Albert Memmi's book, um, The Colonizer and the Colonized, where he sort of describes the colonizers as sort of picking up the colonized and taking them, placing them off to the side of the path to, to development. Um, does, that, does that resonate? Yeah, of course, of course, uh, of course. Uh, I, I think, I think uh, you find resonances of these ideas in Albert Memi, as you say, you find resonances of these ideas uh, in Amilcar Cabral. Yes, of course, absolutely. Well, I guess then it, sorry, there's an ambulance outside, but I guess then it, what I meant, I mean, you answered the question about implications, but it does sort of feel to me then that most African countries are still outward looking. We're still where we were with um, in the 1960s or 70s maybe even more outward looking at this point um, and totally dependent on foreign capital. Um, does that then mean that we are never going to get sort of an indigenous African philosophy? Uh, <clears throat> no, I, 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 I think it's, it's not the case of uh, uh, sort of uh, there not being uh, uh, an indigenous African philosophy. It's a question of sort of its vitality. Will we get to sort of the optimal conditions uh, for the development of African philosophy in the way that perhaps to use like a kind of normative description, it ought to develop, if you will. Um, so, so it's really, it's really, it's really, of course, I mean, Hontanji is not claiming that there is no African philosophy, uh, but he's really saying something else. He's saying, look, actually, uh, African philosophers who are really concerned about the state of African philosophy must get involved in issues of development, uh, which is interesting because Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of the criticisms of uh, Anton G is that he's very, uh, he's kind of uh, uh, an academic who wants to depoliticize philosophy, which is actually far from the truth. What he doesn't want, he doesn't want philosophers to uh, think that philosophy can do more than it, more than it's able to do. so one of the questions he's, he poses is what can philosophy do? And, and, and for him, the answer is very simple. It can um, clarify some of the issues at stake, uh, clarify different concepts that are relevant to understanding these issues. But of course, by itself, it cannot solve any of these issues. Uh, uh, one would have to sort of uh, integrate the work of philosophers, of uh, economists, um, uh, sociologists, and so on. And of course, one would have to have a kind of political movement uh, uh, with a clear vision and so on. So it's actually a very um, uh, expansive, you know, in one sense, it's an expansive conception of philosophy because he's asking philosophers to sort of reach beyond philosophy and draw on these different disciplines and consider these historical realities and specificities. On the other hand, it's it's a very narrow conception of philosophy because he says, look, you know, if you're telling people that they can be uh, sort of uh, liberated, if you like, through doing philosophy correctly, while well, he thinks you're just uh, kind of engaged almost in a kind of demagoguery, if you will. 